0: Welcome to TopCast and to an irregular episode, I suppose. This is a little bit casual. It's not exactly a a live stream as such, but um, I'm just recording this off the cuff. There may be some construction noise in the background. I'm not going to bother trying to edit that out or do anything about it. Um, The purpose of this today, as the title would give some indication thereof, is a response to objectivist epistemology. Now I do spend a lot of time obviously trying to explain Popperian epistemology and now and again I produce some critiques of alternative epistemologies. Things like Bayesian epistemology let's say. I've also produced some episodes just simply titled something like Objective Knowledge where I try to provide the best explanation I can of Popper's understanding of how knowledge is created augmented with the improvements that I think David Deutsch has made as well. What I'm doing today is taking that stuff and applying it to something by an objectivist. There's a lot of objectivist writings out there about epistemology. I like to take these guys seriously in their own terms because they're serious. They're serious about trying to come to an understanding of knowledge. I think objectivism has a lot of great virtues. I think it has a wonderful understanding and defence of things like capitalism and personal liberty and the way in which economic systems obviously work, things about personal responsibility, finding value in life, value in your own life. All of that stuff is great. But in terms of the epistemology, the epistemology is to me, and I'm going to speak plainly here, primitive. It hasn't moved far at all beyond... The ancient misconceptions. It's mired in the same problems that all the people prior to Popper had. Uh, they, the, the greater difficulty I have with objectivism is not just that, well, they're just going through all the same misconceptions, so I could leave that aside. It's just that they also insist on using this word objective rather often. And Ayn Rand, of course, called her philosophy objectivism. What objectivism is, is the philosophy of ayn rand i follow your on brook on this your on brook says well you can make progress in philosophy you can make progress in epistemology absolutely for sure but you can't kind of make progress in objectivism and he makes a good point as to why because that's a closed system it's a closed system because ayn rand wrote it down so whatever ayn rand wrote down that's it that's that's the that's what objectivism is It's a strange way to think about things, but, you know, if you want to call it that, you can call it that. It's kind of like regarding the Lord of the Rings as, well, that's what Tolkien wrote. It's not an open system. The story of the Lord of the Rings is what Tolkien wrote. Other people can produce other stuff. Other people can produce other writings about the world of Middle Earth, about the world of Tolkien, but it's not the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Okay, so it's not an open system. It's a closed system. And so you have to regard objectivism as the same kind of thing. To some extent, I just find it perverse because objectivism implies objective. And objective has a good meaning in science and philosophy and epistemology. And Popper wrote the book called Objective Knowledge. And so we have this real problem of terminology that is unfortunately exacerbated by the existence of this thing called objectivism. Especially when, as I've argued before in my piece on objective knowledge, we have an theory of objective knowledge given to us by Popper, and then you have this thing called objectivism, which I think is subjectivist to the core. It's about subjects, minds, people, how people feel and what's going on in people's minds. And we know this is not the case. We're actually in the process. We, I say we, but you know, people on the Popperian side of the lecture, people who are physicists, people like Chiara Marleto, David Deutsch we are working on the concept of knowledge as resilient information, as something that, yeah, although people do it, it's not about people, okay? In the same way that, you know, it's a cosmic view of knowledge. It's, a, it's saying that people are important and significant in the world because they create knowledge, but knowledge isn't, in a sense, restricted by what any particular person thinks about it, That people's ideas about knowledge doesn't change what knowledge is as a physical and abstract thing out there in the world. I think Chiara uses the example, you know, if people say, well, knowledge is just this parochial thing about um, people, you know, and so it's anthropocentric to talk about knowledge because knowledge is just something that people do. That's like saying you're saying that you've got a dishwasher-centered view of the universe if you start saying things like dishwashers have this special capacity to wash dishes uh, that exceeds the capacity of anything else in the known universe to do. Okay, that's a true claim, and it's a claim kind of about the universe in a sense. There are these things that exist in it called dishwashers that wash dishes better than anything else we know but it's not a dishwasher-centred view of the universe. <laughs> and so in the same way, people create knowledge, and knowledge actually has this capacity to go on and do stuff in the universe to radically change the universe, but it's not a person-centred view of knowledge, okay? Because just because you're saying that people exist and they can create knowledge in this way and they can have this profound effect on the universe, it doesn't, it's got nothing to do with a subjective view of knowledge. The objective view of knowledge says that knowledge has physical effects out there in the real world and this demands explanation in terms of physics, in terms of ideas about stuff in the universe and laws that that stuff behaves, you know, in the form of us, you know, just the way the dishwasher obeys certain laws in order to wash dishes. And if you want to understand the operation of a dishwasher you kind of have to understand the laws that are governing the dishwasher okay classical mechanical laws about the engines and water and all sorts of stuff like that we don't know what the laws are that sort of bound the way in which people can create knowledge we're still coming to an understanding of that and so this is why again epistemology has this deep connection to physics we're struggling to understand this stuff it's important that we do but we need to take knowledge out of the realm of concerns about personal psychology, concerns about what people believe uh, and what people might think they've induced, let's say, from the observations that they make. Okay, It's not about people. Even though people are the things that create the knowledge – the knowledge goes on to be tested against objective reality and it can be instantiated in things, can be represented in things that aren't people and transmitted in a substrate independent way. In other words, it can be transmitted from the mind onto paper, into computers, transmitted over long distances and then copied into these other physical forms and eventually affecting other people or affecting huge structures. You know, we've got the International Space Station, that's only going to continue to radically transform the universe. These are things I've said many times before. I'm repeating them here now because uh, the hope is that some objectivists might listen to this and might just understand that Popper has something to say. R- Ayn Rand said some things about knowledge. She got some things right. I'm not saying that she was completely and utterly wrong. There's an escape from authoritarianism in the epistemology of Ayn Rand. That's fine. That's great. Okay, uh, Empiricism was an escape from authoritarianism in other words you don't just get the knowledge from the priests you don't have to believe what the person with the credential says you can come to your own ideas uh, you can construct knowledge for yourself so she gets that right she just doesn't know how it works and she doesn't escape from induction this idea that you observe a particular number of things and then from those limited finite set of observations you somehow come up with a generalized rule or a universal law, a scientific theory. And and this is the poverty of that view. Now, I should just say, and this is something that has uh, appeared on my website for, well, I suppose, uh, many, many years now, probably a decade or something I had this, and it's on the about part of my website. I just need to say it now because I know that uh, there are people engaged in these kind of discussions who get very upset, they don't like to hear, um, especially Ayn Rand being criticised in a deep foundational way. So I just want to say this, and what I say on my About page, is the very last line of my About page on my website, and it reads, quote, Criticism is the best thing you can do for an idea. Arrogance isn't a criticism. <laughs> End quote. So I'm not going to say Ayn Rand is arrogant. Some people will say I'm arrogant for saying Ayn Rand is completely foundational. well, not completely, but foundationally, fundamentally wrong when it comes to epistemology, She hasn't added anything new to epistemology. Uh, She gets many, many things wrong. If only the objectivists took on Popperian epistemology, it would be so much the richer for that. They would understand how progress occurs. They'd have a more optimistic view, uh, especially of other people as well, and the error-prone nature of other people. And perhaps... Take away many, many of the discussions they have about who's a good person, who's a bad person, who's an ally to their cause, and who isn't. Because often it comes down to this person is a bad person because they're not able to create knowledge in the right way. Of course, Popper has this different view of people as knowledge creators who are always error-prone, infinite in their ignorance, and fallible. So. We have kind of a more compassionate view of other people because of the epistemology. It, it leads to that idea that everyone's error-prone, including the objectivists, especially on this point. So I am taking things seriously here. I'm, I'm, I'm criticising the ideas because, as I say there, and as I've always had the philosophy, that criticism is the best you can do for an idea. If I didn't care about it, I wouldn't bother doing this. And then, you know, there's, there's in certain moods in which I... I cannot be bothered kind of engaging with uh, some people who are dogmatically wedded to the entirety of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Look, put it this way. I'm not entirely wedded to the entirety of Popper's philosophy. I think that there are aspects of his views on economics, for example, that I think are wrong. I don't concentrate on them. I ignore them. I don't uh, bother criticising them because I think they're just a better idea. So you just pick the best ideas, The ideas that solve your problem, the ideas that work and are the best explanations. Okay. Ayn Rand has things that you can extract out of the body of work that she has. Uh, Use them. But I would certainly never call myself an objectivist. And one reason is because objectivist epistemology, which they claim is the foundational thing upon which the rest is built... Uh, is necessary in order to produce what's called objectivism. I think that's wrong. I think you can get to the economics, the, the capitalism, and to aspects of the morality by ignoring the epistemology. And in fact, you have to if you want to validly do it because the epistemology is false, and you can't get truth out of a falsehood, <laughs> a complete falsehood anyway. So for today, I'm not responding directly to the content in Ayn Rand's work because I've already done that and uh, you know the previous episode was was me responding directly to Ayn Rand so that's been done and so it's something something different today. One other really important reason for doing something like this is that having looked at Ayn Rand in her own words in an introduction to objectivist epistemology and I made that previous podcast, about an hour devoted entirely to analyzing excerpts from that work. And the feedback I got from objectivists was predictable in a sense. People saying, I misinterpreted Rand. Uh, She didn't mean what I said that she meant. That, in fact, when she's talking about concept formation, she means fallible knowledge creation. Now, I didn't get that out of introduction to objectivist epistemology. And insofar as it's there, it's contradicted by other things that she says. But whatever the case, people claim I don't understand Rand. So the next step, the next step is to go to other people who self-identify as objectivists, who say they've also read these books by Rand and these papers by Rand on epistemology and are reinterpreting them into their own words. So let's see what the objectivists get from introduction to objectivist epistemology. And so we're going through this filter system. So I've looked at Rand, I've critiqued Rand, I've been told by some objectivists that my critique isn't valid, and so now I'm going to take the word of the objectivists, who are not Rand, who are interpreting Rand for the rest of us, and now I'm going to critique them. So I think I'm I'm trying to do a, as fair a spread in terms of an approach to critiquing the ideas of objectivism by looking at the person, namely Ayn Rand, in her own words, and now also looking at other people who endorse the work of Ayn Rand, who are putting that in their own words. So um, beyond doing these two things, I don't know what more I can do, but this is my approach and, and hence this additional podcast or podcasts today. Um, I'm not going to speak about uh, Leonard Peikoff's stuff. Uh, He was um, possibly Ayn Rand's greatest supporter, uh, promoter. Uh, I've talked about uh, Euron Brook's stuff on the podcast before. You can go back through my back catalogue and uh, see some occasions where I've directly tried to connect uh, some of what I talk about here to Euron Brook. I think Euron Brook is a brilliant expositor of her ideas. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm Taking a paper written by a fellow called Thomas Miovis Jr., and he describes himself as a Bachelor of Arts in both physics and philosophy from the University of Dallas and graduated in 1987. He's prolific on places like Cora and other forums. Uh, he runs a particular website which is called AppliedPhilosophyOnline.com, and he's written copious articles all about Ayn Rand and objectivism. So he's very well read on this stuff. And so he can incorporate ideas from diverse parts of Ayn Rand's philosophy and synthesize them together and explain them. And this is the important thing, he can explain them well to other people. And so I've encountered Thomas Miovis and I've had an exchange with him and he just wasn't buying it. He wasn't buying Popper's epistemology. So I thought I'd i do him the credit of, because he provided me with a link to a paper specifically about induction, which gives an insight into the way that the objectivists think about this and how they try to salvage this concept of induction. And so I'm just going to go through that. And we have to say that Thomas doesn't represent directly what Ayn Rand says, but it gives you a sense of what the objectivists think about induction and how they go about trying to explain it. And also personally, it will give me some ability to prepare for conversations I might have in the future with objectivists. And if objectivists hear this and they want to have a conversation with me about this, then they have some grist for the mill as well, because we want to be able to actually come to a meeting of minds. I think epistemology is important. I think that knowing how knowledge is created helps us to create it better, especially when we're running into problems, and especially in the era of people deferring increasingly to authority and thinking that the science speaks for itself and that kind of thing And we need to have a, a a more rigorous understanding of how it is we can be fallible how it is that we can construct knowledge which is open to revision and yet be able to say there is a categorical difference between knowing stuff and having a good explanation and not and making stuff up and being in ignorance and all that kind of thing and so this is an important problem that always has been And this problem hasn't left us, but it can be improved when people of reason, which I would regard the objectivists as being, just as I would regard the Bayesians as being and and rationalists in general as being, of having a meeting of minds and coming together so that we can counter what would be anti-enlightenment and anti-intellectual sentiment that's out there, because we're all on the same side when it comes to that. So having a unified front when it comes to fallibilism and the construction of knowledge, I think, could be helpful or not. We'll see. This is my attempt. Okay. Now it's going to, I admit, come across as rather strident, but this is simply because we need to be clear. We just this is very much what Ayn Rand would say. You just need to speak what you think is correct. You just have to say it clearly. And so I'm going to say clearly here that Thomas is completely wrong. Okay, not completely. I'm gonna go stop saying that. Thomas is wrong in fundamental ways, and he's wrong in fundamental ways because he's getting a lot of his stuff from Ayn Rand, from objectivism, and that is fundamentally wrong when it comes to objectivism. So I've said that enough, let me get into the explanation as to why this is the case. So, I'm reading from a paper written in 2014 by Thomas, I'm just going to refer to him as Thomas throughout this, and he says this is an actual... uh, a major essay he's written on induction incorporated many of his previous ideas and he thinks this is a much better written essay and so it's just titled induction okay so I'm going to do this as I do with my books I'm going to quote a bit and then I'm going to uh, respond I can't go through the entire um, essay here because well again to be clear I think it's repetitive I think he's saying similar things throughout the essay that he makes early on in the essay and at the end of the essay. So sometimes he's not adding anything. It just becomes very repetitious, and so my criticisms would continue to be repetitious. This is probably going to go on for quite a while. I can't imagine how long. I may have to cut it short. Let's just see. Thomas begins, quote, After giving it considerable thought, I think it is possible to incorporate concept formation, generalisations, scientific induction and philosophical induction under one general term of induction, end quote. So what he's saying there is making a claim that all of these things are precisely the same kind of thing. In other words, concept formation, generalisation, scientific induction, philosophical induction. So immediately we've got an issue. In particular, this idea of concept formation. He is saying, well, that just is induction. For me, that immediately is an issue, because for almost all of human history, in particular in philosophy, when I say human history, recorded human history, recorded human history of the history of ideas, people have tried to communicate using a common language, and in this case, we have an understanding of what induction is. This is why I've argued before that neologisms, people making up words, hinders communication. And here Thomas is just conflating concept formation, which is a mystery to most people, with the process of induction, which I would say is well understood, and well understood to be false. So the argument will become, as far as I can tell, here is this thing that is well understood, well understood, by the way, not to work, to be irrational, this thing that I'm calling irrational, of course, being induction, which has at its heart a problem that has plagued people from before Hume through to David Hume, and later until Popper, who wrote the book, essentially on the solution to the problem of induction. Because, spoiler for objectivists perhaps listening, induction is indeed irrational. It cannot possibly work. It's not a method of reaching conclusions. From any finite set of observations... One cannot simply, validly, draw a logical conclusion that any universal claim follows. That is well understood. Concept formation, on the other hand, is something quite different, of forming a concept of something. You're not going from the observations and then going through some logical or pseudo-logical process to get to this explanation. You've got observations, and observations are not explanations. So the, the problem is, how do you get from the observations to the explanations? Just calling that induction is, is not a solution. It's just giving a label to a problem. You can call it concept formation, but you've still got the same problem. and You've got a double problem because people already have a word for generalising from observation, observation, observations to a, a generalisation that observations of that sort will continue. That's called induction which is the error. Concept formation is a mystery. It's synonymous in Popperian epistemology with the concept of conjecture. Uh, that's from the book, Conjectures and Refutations. It's the po- title of Popper's great work on this. It's why he's famous, why he's ignored and not read by objectivists. I don't know, but he's, he's trying to tell you that, yeah, there is this problem, right? You, you, we do observe, okay? Observation's got something to do with the creation of knowledge. But it can't be generalising those observations into a prediction of some sort, much less a theory of some sort. And simply calling it concept formation isn't a solution. The question is, how is this done? How is this concept formation actually done? And saying that that is induction is wrong. It's wrong for two reasons. One, it's not an explanation. Just labelling something Some not an explanation. And two, the idea of induction already has a well-understood meaning, a definition, if you like, of reasoning from the particular to the general. But what this tells me immediately, that, that, that Thomas is conflating these things, is saying that concept formation is induction, well, he's noticed a problem. He's noticed there's a difference between some things. What is called induction which is a crucial part of the epistemology of Rand and defined by Rand and defended by her. And he's noticed there's a difference between that and what he's calling scientific induction and and other kinds of induction, philosophical induction he invokes as well. So he's noticing there's a difference between these things. After all, he's saying there's at least four of them because there's a scientific, the philosophical, the induction and the concept formation. But because he wants to defend objectivism I and mean, objectivism objectivist epistemology has at its heart in induction he wants to preserve the term so he's got to redefine it why because he knows he's noticed the problem but this is trying to hold Rand's epistemology of objectivism trying to hold it immune from criticism from refutation by redefining it by saying ah oh, that's not what is meant over there and objective It's not what, what is really meant. This is what induction means, but that holds it immune from criticism. You, you need to stick your neck out. And I think Rand did stick a neck out and she stuck her neck out on this. And she was, she's been refuted, she has been shown false. That's yeah. Okay. It's a, it's a flaw in the epistemology. It doesn't make everything that she said wrong. So what, what Thomas is doing is he's taking a genuine, true process of concept formation, which all of us know exists. We just don't know how it works. Rather like we know how human minds, we know that they exist, but we don't know how they work. We notice, we know how galaxies rotate. We know that galaxies rotate, I should say. They rotate in a specific way, but we do not know why they rotate in that specific way. So we invent this term called dark matter, which is just a a name of a problem for uh, why it is that galaxies rotate in an unusual way. We postulate there must be missing matter out there, providing the gravity that speeds them up. But it's still a problem, right? Concept formation, whatever that is, is a problem, not explained by induction. So, But he's taking that, that, that well-known and appreciated idea of concept formation, or better yet, knowledge creation, and he just says, well, that is induction. So that fails for those reasons. Not least because it doesn't solve the question of how knowledge is created in details beyond the fact that it's conjectured, but we already knew that much. It also fails to account for the differences between this scientific and philosophical induction and concept formation, and it doesn't explain how the processes in science and philosophy, how they differ, or why, or what the line of demarcation is. So in all these ways, he's solved no problems, and he's beginning to introduce many, many more, and we're at sentence one. And we should probably say, or just re-emphasise, that these criticisms are of this particular paper and the contents of this particular paper. So they might not be readily transferable to objectivism of Rand's philosophy. But by implication, if a scholar, or a person at least, who has deep interest in the work of Ayn Rand, who has read, by his own admissions, widely and deeply the work of Ayn Rand, who is a follower of her thoughts, who understands her epistemology, and is here explaining a version thereof of it, because, presumably, he's trying to improve the exposition of it, or in fact, improve the philosophy itself, then the criticisms that I'm giving are of this paper and perhaps not of rand herself but by implication that would be a criticism of rand itself by logical implication because if what thomas is doing here is trying to improve upon or adapt ayn rand because he's found some deficiency there in either the expression or substance thereof then everything that he's criticizing i agree with those criticisms it's just i'm going further and criticizing also what he says. I have criticisms of Rand. I've read Ayn Rand's. In particular, I focused on her epistemology and found all of these things that I'm about to say here also apply there to her work as well. But I, yeah, I'm i waiting for the day to discuss uh, in real life, in person on a podcast or something like that, uh, this material. Okay, so let's keep going with Thomas's piece. Thomas continues to write, quote, I think there are enough similarities between the mental processes, including observation to abstraction, omitting measurements, the unit perspective, and that each leads to a product that is open-ended within a range to say the similarities are sufficient to warrant having one general concept of induction. In fact, what got me thinking along these lines is the following passage from Ayn Rand's Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. Uh, pausing there my reflection end quote okay so he's about to get to quoting Objectivist Epistemology Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology and Objectivist Epistemology is you know it's a 293 page book it's a big tome all about uh, about the epistemology of Ayn Rand Um, and it's just it's such a it's such a mountain to climb I mean on every page there's a misconception and uh, fans of top cast will know that uh, I've done this sort of thing over and again where I've um Uh, Tried to critique uh, various other thinkers, intellectuals, and so on. And it's so hard to know where to begin. But you begin somewhere. And then, you know, you have these lengthy expositions. And it can be an arduous, (laughs) arduous process. Arduous process for me. Well, I kind of find it fun. But there, there comes a point where it's just frustrating the mountain of misconceptions that exist there. And Rand is one such when it comes to epistemology. There are commonalities, sure but it's the differences that make all the difference here. And so I haven't, I've I've written a few things about the work. I've mentioned at times the work in my podcast called Objective Knowledge. I do refer to objectivist epistemology and i pull out some quotes and we talk about it. It's one of those books where I've read through it and just, you know, there's just so much to disagree with it's hard to begin constructing something like a podcast in order to respond to it. so I'd rather have a conversation about it. And so this this particular article before us right now by Thomas is uh, easier as an inroad into uh, the, the broad thinking of objectivists on this. Uh, what I'd just say about what he's written there, because he begins his little passage there with, I think there are enough similarities between the mental processes, including observation to abstraction and measurements and the unit perspective, and that each leads to a product that is open-ended within a range. To say the similarities are sufficient to warrant having one general concept of induction. Okay, so he wants to have this one thing called induction. He wants to have one label that covers all of these things: observation to abstraction. Now, how that works? Well, this is the this is the whole problem. You know, you're observing stuff, and then you get to this general law and abstraction omitting measurements, the unit perspective. You know, these things are philosophical jargon that make it difficult to follow for the layperson to read. And, and there's another difficulty I have with certain ways of philosophising, philosophising in the abstract using jargon. I don't like that. It's the same reason I don't like postmodern style thinking and writing. Like so-called objectivism or objectivist epistemology is at-heart subjectivist. You can see it right there because he's talking about mental processes. Mental processes. So it takes epistemology out of the physical world of objects and comparing stuff to reality and puts it into mental processes. And I've argued before, this is why it's a perverse invocation of the term objective. Popper's objective knowledge um, has it that, that it is about objects and stuff out there and you know how you go about uh, constructing stuff in the world, substrate independent, that we call knowledge that solves your problem. And that, that's also an objective claim. But if it's about mental processes, then then, then uh, uh, epistemology is a study of minds, the goings-on in minds, but it's not. Though guesses are generated by people, that are then tested against reality and can, this is absolutely crucial, entirely missed by the philosophy of Rand, entirely absent, that the knowledge is instantiated in physical substrates. It is represented in objects, it's out there, and it can be tested by the functionality of those objects and the fidelity with which those objects can be used to copy and transmit the knowledge. This is utterly independent of the goings-on in mind. It's not about mental processes. I'm missing the point. Uh, okay, so now we get the quote from Rand, and the quote from Rand is, quote, Thus the process of forming and applying concepts contains the essential pattern of two fundamental methods of cognition, induction and deduction the process of observing the facts of reality and of integrating them into concepts is, in essence, a process of induction. So let's just repeat that. Let's just keep that in mind. This is what Rand is saying. The process of observing the facts of reality and of integrating them into concepts is, in essence, a process of induction. So that's what she thinks. She thinks it's a process of, of observing the facts of reality, of observing the facts of reality, observing. I know I'm labouring this point, but I'm presuming at least some objectivists will be listening to this. What a Popperian would say, what I would say, is that that claim is just a fundamental misunderstanding of how concept formation, as you're calling it, occurs. There's no process of observing the facts of reality. Let's consider an example. Consider observing stars. What you see at night are cold, dim, tiny pinpricks of light eons our ancestors used their senses to observe those facts of reality. But those observations got them not one jot closer to reality. Reality, so far as we know it, always partially, always imperfectly, consists of stars, but they're not cold, they're hot. They're not dim, they're bright. They're not tiny, they're vast. You don't get that by observation. Observation of the kind you're talking about gives you an entirely misleading picture of reality. Popper explained... What we do has nothing to do with that kind of observation. Instead, first we conjecture explanations. We begin with our guesses about reality. We're walking around with knowledge already. Then we use those observations to check those explanations against reality. Observations are crucial. I'm not saying observations aren't important for the generation of knowledge. I'm just saying you can't derive the knowledge from your observations. So the process is nothing like Rand imagines. Moreover, we never get The facts of reality. What does that mean, the facts of reality? The facts of reality, that's the domain of ontology, what is true in terms of actual reality. But we only have access to ontology, to to ultimate reality, to the facts of reality via an epistemological process, the construction of knowledge. And the construction of knowledge merely represents our best understanding of reality. Understanding the truth of reality, we're representing that. We're not getting to it. It's, it's confusing our understanding of the thing with the thing in itself. And our understanding is always error-prone, open to interpretation and improvement. In fact, that's how progress occurs. We begin with errors, with problems, and only by correcting those errors, finding solutions, do we make progress. The actual process of concept formation, knowledge creation, is about observing, yes, but not observing the facts of reality. It's about observing scant bits of evidence, little bits of light, we guess, coming from the sky, we guess. Now we try to understand. We could be deceived or simply in error. After all, the ancients thought that the little bits of light were coming from, not this thing, the sky, they were coming from the celestial sphere. There were were holes in the celestial sphere coming from a uniform light source further off. We try to understand, but we could always be deceived or in error. It's a a, a long chain of further guesses and careful checks by putting things actually between us and the stars. Glass tubes and computers, the telescopes and instruments of astronomy, they bring us somewhat closer to reality. But never at it, never to it, never at a final explanation, never to the facts of reality. We just refine and improve our knowledge. And eventually, after lots of work, in this case, millennia, centuries, decades in terms of astronomy, we gradually gradually accumulate better ideas by correcting our errors. But if it was just a process of observing the facts of reality, we'd just look up and see burning hot furnaces of nuclear fusion in the core of spherical objects occurring at hundreds of millions of degrees, happening many light years away. But we don't observe that. We, do, we observe none of those reactions. In fact, what we understand tells us that it's impossible to observe those reactions. We can't observe those facts of reality. Th- those reactions in the core of the star are In principle, unobservable. No instrument can get there. Anything made of matter is going to be vaporised, turned to its constituent particles. It'll be unable to send information back to us. If you don't like that example, consider dinosaurs. No one's ever going to observe a dinosaur. The facts of reality about dinosaurs. What they're going to observe, David Deutsch uses this wonderful example, instance of, of this. You observe rocks. Some rocks have strange patterns in them. These patterns are things called fossils. To some people, most of us now, they, they look like animals of a sort, but nothing that walks the earth. And What are they? It took decades, centuries in fact, to figure out what the heck these things are. Now how old these rocks were, how old these fossils were. We interpret stuff, we eventually build up this story called an explanation, a scientific explanation, of fossils. And that that scientific explanation invokes these things called dinosaurs, something we we don't observe. We don't observe dinosaurs. We observe rocks again. Yeah, there are movies like Jurassic Park where they, they show you these dinosaurs running around, but no one's ever seen that in real life. It's fiction. What was it really like back then? Well, we've got some ideas from scant evidence. Bits of rock. (laughs) taken from deep under the earth. We're not observing those facts of reality. We're guessing this explanation. And once we've guessed it, we go out and we compare our guess to further observations we make. But every time we dig up a new fossil, we often get new problems. This one doesn't make sense. Why is this one in this strata not that strata? It seems too old or too young. What's going on here? We thought these things were like lizards and they should have been cold-blooded, but now they've got feathers. They're more like birds. What is going on? There's so many problems with dinosaurs. The theory of dinosaurs. Not that they didn't exist, but we don't understand it because we can't just observe the facts of reality. If we could, then everyone would understand dinosaurs unproblematically. We don't. (laughs) We don't observe the facts of reality. Rand is simply categorically wrong about this. We interpret little bits of evidence and gradually build up knowledge about reality. The so-called facts of reality come at the end of this story. They are logical derivations of the explanations. Where do the explanations come from? The explanations come from problems we encounter that require us to conjecture them and then test them using observations. If we don't have a problem, then we don't have, we already have knowledge. And then the question is, well, how did we get that knowledge that we're already walking around with unproblematically, so to speak? Well, you've got to go back to a time when you did have a problem. Okay, And why did you have that problem? Because, well, you had that problem because some of the knowledge you were walking around with at that time didn't seem to fit with what you just observed. You you encountered a problem. What do you mean that knowledge didn't Fit with the observation you make. Where did you get that knowledge? And so it keeps on going back and back and back. But you always start with this knowledge, right? You're walking around with this knowledge, and then it's a problem. Then knowledge, and problem. The knowledge, and problem. You're not going from the observation and putting the knowledge into your head. That's like the bucket theory of knowledge. You're just filling your head with observations that are giving you reality. It's a very mystical idea. It's like divine inspiration or something. It's false. Now, Rand, who is obviously an uh, an avowed atheist, rejected supernaturalism but this is a supernatural epistemology it's saying that via some magical process the knowledge is there in reality and you just have to have it transmitted to your brain but how how is this concept formation done well it's done inside of your mind by conjecture so this idea that we have this process of observing the facts of reality and integrating them into concepts and that is the process of induction conflates actually the era of empiricism that we observe reality or the facts of reality and that other process of the same name induction traditionally always used to label a process of moving from singular instances to universal laws Everyone knew that couldn't work. It was a problem. It was shown it couldn't work. It was strictly illogical. And Popper solved it all by saying, look, you've got to accept the fact it doesn't work. It simply doesn't exist as a process. It's not valid. So it's not a thing, so therefore knowledge can't use it. Give up on it. Do away with it. We can discard it. Deduction's a thing, but not induction. You don't have to try and ape what's going on in mathematics. Mathematics produces... Mathematical knowledge, you begin with the axioms, you follow the rules of inference, you get to your conclusions or theorems. Very well, that's mathematics, all right? Now we're talking science and other stuff. If you want to say, well, well, it's got to work the same way. Uh, you've, got, you've got to start with something like observations, they're axioms, and then you go through some process of uh, concept formation, we'll call it, and then you get your knowledge. You're trying to shoehorn a mathematical process into science into some other kind of area where where you don't have axioms to begin with the whole problem with that by the way is that you don't know the axioms are true in mathematics anyway Uh, proof is not strictly speaking a, a method of generating mathematical knowledge it's a it's a it's a computation you do to show that theorems follow from particular premises i guess you could call that knowledge but it's a very narrow kind of a thing so popper just said look knowledge doesn't begin in observation it begins in problems From there, you make guesses about reality and you check those against reality, and all of that process checking occurs out there in the objective real world. It's not a parochial subject activity of minds. Okay, so Thomas goes on. Thomas writes, Aristotle defined induction to be the process of reasoning... From the observation of concretes or individuals to a general or universal conclusion, I think this is a good working definition, and I think this type of ability to abstract from particulars to the more general conclusion stems from the human mind's ability to omit measurements, end quote. Okay, so that's Thomas. Here he's explicitly endorsing that definition of going from individuals, individual um, uh, instances, to a general or universal conclusion. In other words, the idea that repeatedly observing sunrises enables us to conclude sunrises will continue into the future. In other words, the future resembles the past. It's a predictive picture of science and knowledge. But prediction is not the sole purpose of knowledge. Explanation is. We want to know why the universal law is the way it is. Saying, well, it worked yesterday, and the day before that, and the day before that, that's no explanation. And indeed, the sun will continue to rise is not even an explanation or a law at all. It's just a prediction, and it is quite false in many places. The poles, the International Space Station, deep space, whatever. Explanations just do not have that form. Explanations are about, look, the Earth rotates on its axis, the sun does not rise, it merely appears to in some places because of the motion of the earth. And you get none of that from observation. This is why the ancients thought that it was the sun and the rest of reality that moved around the earth. They observed the earth to be motionless. Observations do not give us the facts of reality. They do not give us knowledge. We guess at knowledge. We guess at it and create it via a mechanism only poorly understood. And then we check it against reality. Thomas goes on, quote... While this has been explicitly identified as an aspect of concept formation by Ayn Rand, I think it is implicit in the types of inductions that Dr. Peakoff and David Harriman discuss, and the purpose of this essay is to draw out those similarities to make the case that there are four types of inductions and that these have enough similarities that they can be integrated together into one global conception of induction, end quote. So here Thomas, and others perhaps, depart from Rand. Those who do so, like Thomas do so rightly for good reasons. Why they are doing this is clear. They notice that Rand's concept of induction does not work and cannot work when accounting for concept formation, which is knowledge production. So they, they, they try to put things under the same umbrella, some of which are mysterious, some of which Popper just means by conjecture. So they're noticing our problem, but the problem is that because they're not familiar with Popper, much less David Deutsch, they don't get the solutions and they don't get to the clarity of the exposition about what good explanations are and testability and actual objective knowledge as resilient information and its connection to physics and how progress is possible and why this happens and how to fully escape empiricism entirely and how trying to derive knowledge from the senses is is ridiculous, doesn't work, and how there's a role for error identification and correction and all of that, all that richness of Popperian epistemology. In short... What's happening here with Thomas and with others is they notice the problem with Ayn Rand's epistemology and they suggest, but that's okay. What induction really means, what she really might have meant is not just reasoning from the particular to the general, as it always has been, but it also means the opposite of that, coming up with a universal law and then showing how the particulars are logically implied instances of the universal law. But at no point did they grapple with But where did the universal law come from in the first place? They just say induction all over again. He goes on, quote, One doesn't always think of forming a concept as the same thing as drawing a reasoned conclusion from the facts. But I think it is clear that sometimes a great deal of thought and effort must be put into concluding if there are enough similarities between known things to incorporate them into one concept, end quote. And what he said there, likewise, identifies the problem. He's at step one. Indeed, it cannot be the case that concept formation is drawing a reasoned conclusion from the facts. It must be something else. It must involve, instead, a great deal of thought and effort, as he says there. Yes, indeed. Not just observations lead to knowledge of reality. No. The role of observations is to provide a source of problems with existing knowledge. If you already know something, have an explanation, have knowledge then you'll observe things and say, well, well, that makes sense, that makes sense, everything makes sense today. It's either that or something does not make sense, in which case you don't know what's going on, you lack an explanation, you lack knowledge. No further amount of observing at that point can possibly give you what you need, the knowledge. You need to think, just as Thomas says. You need to, in Popper's terminology, conjecture. Well, we might say more casually, take a stab at it. (laughs) Take a guess. Your guess may fail. You'll know it fails, but only then by comparing the guess to reality. Does it work or is it refuted by observation? The observation won't give you the answer. It won't give you the knowledge. It will just tell you that your knowledge doesn't work. It can falsify your claim. Your knowledge comes from within. It will count as a good explanation to you when it solves your problem. It will, in other words make the observation unproblematic, and you'll carry on observing the world is consistent with what you observe, what your senses tell you is going on, until you find another problem, Thomas goes on. Quote, as a pointer to that type of reasoning stemming from observations in an inductive process leading to a conclusion and then to a concept, see how Miss Rand handled, handled the concept of justice and how much effort she put into making the case very clear some things are similar while others are not in her discussion of this term. I'm going to skip a bit here, um, just because what I find problematic here with Ayn Rand in general, and objectivists more broadly, and I think this is actually why, this could be an explanation as to why a few scientists are objectivists, because few objectivists are scientists, or at least physicists anyway. Some are. I mean, Thomas is saying that he did some physics. And it's because it's not problem-centred here. And uh, Thomas will provide, uh, attempt to provide, I should say, some examples of drawn from science. But in general, there's just a poverty of substantive, substantial contact with science at all here. Objective epistemology in general has a very poor record with moving beyond Just abstract philosophising and taking it into the real world of examples and instances, and specifically the history of ideas, and most importantly, the history of the ideas in science. This is an absolute chasm at the heart of the entire body of work and approach of Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand was great on economics. She talked about the history of economic systems and things going on during her time, and that's just so important. It grounds her discussions of economics and trade and capitalism in the real world. It's talking about reality. Her morality likewise, to some extent. But the preeminent, crystalline, easy to speak about way in which knowledge is created, is science. If a person discussing epistemology ignores science, substantial amounts of science, they ignore how very real-world actual knowledge is produced. They've got no examples to draw on. And they're not talking about actual objective knowledge, the knowledge of objects, knowledge of things beyond stuff like just psychology or more controversial things, perhaps, like the knowledge in morality and history. Not to say that epistemology doesn't apply to those domains, that it's somehow different in those domains. It it absolutely does apply to those domains. But the problem is that people there in history and morality disagree with the facts of the matter. There's different interpretations. And so this just adds an extra... People get distracted and start talking about the history and talking about the morality rather than focusing on the epistemology. But in science, it makes things much easier and cleaner because there we can talk about Ptolemy and, and Galileo. We can, we can at least agree Ptolemy was a geocentrist and we can understand what geocentrism is. And Galileo was a heliocentrist and we, we can discuss what that means. And Newton was an early physicist, and and Einstein was a physicist, and we can talk about their different kinds of physics and the problems that they're involved in, the the very specific stuff that was going on with them, what they learned, how they learned it, and how that all worked. But Rand, Ayn Rand, misses this. Her defenders avoid this. They fall into complete abstraction, philosophising for philosophy's sake, rather than trying to solve a problem in the knowledge production in science. Where is an instance in actual science that their ideas work? There's no comment in her body of work. We will see in this piece here by Thomas, there's just nothing about how any of this works in actual science. It's disconnected from reality. And this is a terrible weakness. And it's ultimately why the epistemology fails. Let's get going. Thomas writes, quote, Historically, induction has been taken to mean going from the observation of particulars to abstract thinking, which I think is possible within objectivism only if the measurements are admitted. So part of my approach will show that measurement omission is involved in all four types of induction, concept formation, generalisation, scientific induction, and philosophical induction, end quote. What we're going to see is this measurement omission is his attempt to bring science into things. But it's very poor. It's very poor. Um, it, it doesn't make the point he wants to. But he agrees that it, it is about going from particulars to abstract thinking. But again, we don't have this, uh, any process whereby this could possibly occur. It's also neologism generating and conflating these four different things of science and philosophy and generalisation and concept formation. Uh, but it's better if we had very clean, specific examples of each, which we don't get. He goes on to say, quote, for concept formation, one observes the facts of reality, end quote. Again, how exactly? If I look outside as a child, or if a child looks outside, and they see some light in the sky, they see, they see blue and they see green. But If the child is young enough, they, they don't even know what those words mean. They just know that there's differences. They don't know what the sky is. You know, if it's me as a very young child, am I, am I observing the sky? I see trees, but I don't know what they are. Are all green things trees? What about that green stuff, uh, that grass? But I don't know the word for grass. Is the sky real, or is it an illusion? It turns out it's actually just air. Well, air's not actually blue, but it looks blue. Well, this is a complex process of actually seeing sunlight, but I'm not looking directly at the sun. Sunlight's not blue, but why is the sky blue then? Well, the sky doesn't exist. Well, why is the air blue? Well, the air's not blue, but I'm seeing blue well, because of the sunlight. But the sunlight's white. Well, why is the sky blue? Well, because sunlight, or white light, is actually all the colours of the rainbow. So why aren't I seeing all the colours of the rainbow there in the sky? Well, because the sky doesn't exist, and it can't be blue, and it's not the air that's glowing. It's the light from the sun, and in fact it's being scattered. Oh, what's scattering? Oh, that's a whole other thing. And you're not observing the scattering of light specifically, because that's going on at the level of the molecules. But we call what's going on the scattering of light. I'm observing blue up there. What even is this light? Photons. Am I observing photons? I can't see any photons. I, again, I just see blue light. But if I'm not observing photons, then what's going on? Well, the photons are these little particles of light. They're, they're hitting my retina. But I'm not my retina, I'm my brain. Well, actually, no, I'm my mind. For my brain is just a bunch of electrical crackles. My mind, however that works, that's a mystery, and here is where our scientific understanding truly ends, my mind interprets those electrical crackles from my brain. That's how knowledge is created. We call that interpretation conjecture and refutation because it is an abstract process of a kind poorly understood. But this idea that we observe the facts of reality in the way induction would have it, no matter what kind of adduction it is, is so profoundly flawed, and yet simultaneously so widespread, it is actually one of the reasons progress slows, because some people with influence tend to have great sway in persuading people that we should just observe the facts of reality. But it's not that simple. We observe scant signals we get via our imperfect senses of that reality. Again, what's going on? Let's go in reverse. There are these crackles of electrical activity going on inside of our brain, and that is interpreted by our minds. Those crackles of electricity inside of our brain, well, some of them are occurring because photons of light have hit the retina of our eye, then transmitted via the optic nerve back to the brain. And the reason why those photons hit the retina around our eyes is because we've looked up into the air. And we've looked up into the air and we've seen this blue. And the reason we've seen blue is because light from the sun, which is white, all the colours of the rainbow is getting scattered by molecules like nitrogen in the atmosphere. The blue gets scattered more than anything else. And scattered means it it sort of bounces off. Not exactly, even that process of bouncing off the the nitrogen molecules is more complex, causing movement of electrons in those molecules. And whatever the case, the the, the light goes off in all directions. Some of it is directed back down towards the earth, entering our eyes and causing those electrical crackles. This is what Popper means by theory-laden observation. This is why it is such a deep, rich epistemology. There's nothing like this at all in the objectivist epistemology of Ayn Rand. It disconnected from science, disconnected from this concept of theory-laden observation of how we're so fallible because at any, any of that chain of explanation could be wrong because the observation itself is something we're understanding, only imperfectly. You don't observe the facts of reality again. Nature doesn't give us perfect senses. What do you think an optical illusion is? What do you think change blindness is? Look that up if you don't know it. We won't make mistakes all the time. I'm going to come back to this. Thomas goes on though. He says, one observes the facts of realities, notices similarities of various things observed within a context or an abstraction from the background, which requires a type of selective mental focus. End quote. So he thinks we notice similarities between things. But how do we notice those similarities? What counts as a similarity? What is a very specific example? Are all stars similar when we look up? We already said they're all cold and dim in the sky, so we're all stars like that. How do we distinguish the planets from the stars in the sky? They're different colours. But some stars are reddish, just like some planets. We do not see planets and stars. We see lights in the sky and we have much work to do to interpret what we think we see. Thomas goes on to say, The abstraction from the background quote, unites the various observations together by omitting measurements while retaining the differentiated concepts, names the concept, i.e. cat, and then defines this concept either by being able to point to instances of those things which are subsumed under the concept, or in terms of concepts already created, so as to start building a conceptual hierarchy. The concept of cat can be understood by pointing to various cats, observed, or by referencing other concepts, like a cat is a four-legged animal with claws and fur and meows as a means of communication." End quote. So you can see here it's it's the old style attempt of trying to turn all knowledge generation or concept formation into a deductive process. If you don't already have the concept, then you just rely on other concepts. Where did they come from? Well, concept formation of this kind where if you don't already have the concept, you look at the concepts you've got before. And if you don't already have concepts before, we've well, got to create them how by relying on other concepts and observing stuff that you generalize. This is the picture. This is how you develop knowledge of what a cat is. But it's not true. Okay? We begin with a problem. This is what actually happens when, when people are learning about cats. A child asks, well, what is that? And we go, oh, that's a cat. So the child guesses. Okay, furry things with four legs of cats, something that looks like that. So later on, they see a dog and they go, ah, cat. And you correct them and you go, no dog, woof woof, noisy. Or you might say even more than that, more details. Later on, you just happen to hear, meow. Hear that? Meow, cat. The child then begins to refine their guesses. They're encountering problems constantly. What is that? What does that mean? You give answers. They don't get it immediately, but they keep on checking their guesses against reality. We don't know how people construct the knowledge, but this is how they're doing it. Asking questions, encountering problems, asking more questions, checking it against reality. The guesses they've got, the guesses they're making, they're coming from within, not from without. They're subjective in origin, but they are then checked against reality, which makes them objective knowledge when they're not refuted. The child is learning, creating knowledge. And that comes from within their mind. It does not come from the reality out there. That idea that it's observations from which we derive our knowledge is cart before the horse. Okay, look, we've said enough today, I think. This has gone on for over an hour. <laughs> so let's call it a day here. There's more that Thomas has written. There's more that I have to say about what Thomas has written as a as an objectivist scholar, as someone who understands the work of Ayn Rand and is putting it in their own words and who is perhaps improving on it, but at least giving you a taste of what people take from Ayn Rand, where they think Ayn Rand might be deficient and where they're following in her footsteps, trying to improve in the same direction. And what I would say is making all the same kinds of missteps, not improving anything along the way, not actually coming to a deep understanding of where knowledge comes from, what knowledge even is, as useful information that solves a problem, as information that tends to get itself copied, as the information that once instantiated in a physical substrate somewhere or other tends to cause itself to remain so. All of that stuff, knowledge as being objective in two senses, not because it's been derived from reality, but rather because it's been checked against reality, and any knowledge claim, knowledge itself, can be wrong, objectively wrong. Ruling out dogmatism, by the way, which insists that you can't possibly be wrong, and ruling out relativism, saying that no one is objectively wrong because everyone's claim to the truth is equal. So only Popper's version of objective knowledge in this sense actually walks that line, actually says, well, you can objectively be wrong. And in fact, you should expect to be objectively wrong. And not only is it objective in that epistemological sense, but there's an ontological sense as well. Namely, it's knowledge that can be instantiated in objects, inexplicitly. A telescope instantiates the knowledge of optics, the physics of optics, how... light is bent, refracted and focused, collected, refracted, focused, I should say. Uh, All objects are kind of like this. They can be reverse engineered because they contain (laughs) knowledge that we've actually put into the object, required for the functionality of the object. Uh, Similarly, biological knowledge in the the, the cells of uh, the nuclei of cells in the form of DNA, how to build life forms. This is all accounted for in the work of Karl Popper and David Deutsch. It really does solve problems. It it doesn't provide everything we would like to know about knowledge. Constructor theory is already opening up possibilities for how to come to an even deeper understanding of the physics, the physics, mind you, of knowledge construction. And all of this is real world progress in philosophy, epistemology, science about knowledge, which you just don't get from any other philosopher. The philosophy, certainly not, (laughs) certainly not objectivism or the work of Ayn Rand or objectivists in general that are just making the same old errors of Plato and Kant. They're caught up in these same old, boring, dead-end cul-de-sacs of abstractly arguing about the meanings of words in the same way that Wittgenstein did and so many others should be following in the steps of Karl Popper, who himself said, you know, he was following in the, in the steps of Socrates, not Aristotle and not Plato. Okay? Socrates understood that you know, he could be wrong and that he had questions and the questions were the way in which we made progress, not in having final answers. Okay, <laughs> enough of a rant by me. More next time from uh, Thomas uh, Miovis the objectivist. I'll finish reading his paper or or certainly read a little more, provide some more commentary on this. Uh, And then one day, you know, hopefully I'll be able to have a discussion with some objectivists and try to flesh this out. Uh, Because I think I'm trying to do as fair a job I can by providing the quotes and providing commentary on the quotes from Ayn Rand herself and what one might say are disciples of, or, you know, followers of, enthusiasts of, i Rand. Until next time, bye bye.